the, in the church, the ones that look like this, it's page 931, 931, Proverbs chapter 20, verses 9 through 17. We, we began with God's holiness, and um, we're going to talk essentially about that other part of being holy. Be holy because God is holy. If we get it backwards, we're holy because God's the foundation, God's the purpose, God's the goal, God's holiness. It, it, it's, all, it's all grounded in, in God's holiness first. If we, if we flip it around, if we go the other way, and we, we start our holiness and then go to God's holiness, we'll be incinerated. Um, it's because he's holy that uh, we can be holy. And we want to talk about that this morning, except, like, as I said, we're going to use a different word this morning for holiness. Uh, but let's pray first. Proverbs chapter 20, verses 9 to 17. Let's pray first, and then look at this, uh, this text of Scripture. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for the wisdom that's here. Help us to see uh, the the deep, deep work that you do in us by your spirit through Jesus. This is death and resurrection for us. And um, how you transform us completely, totally to this new life that you call us to and and though we stumble and though we sometimes feel like we're in a fog, though sometimes um, the struggles are just sometimes so, so intense, Father, help us to, to, to just grip on to the fact that you've called us to this. You, the Holy One, have called us to this life of holiness. And you will supply what you command. So we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was driving to work uh, um, a couple of months ago. I was listening to the radio, listening to a sports radio station. And uh, they were talking about this golfer who basically disqualified himself after shooting a course record 62 that would have made him um, eligible for the U.S. Open, or at least to play in the U.S. Open qualifier. He had, this golfer had completed his round, and he was watching a teammate play, and they were just standing around, and someone casually mentioned something about the air-rated greens that they were playing on. And uh, the golfer immediately realized that, you know, he had through his round been fixing all those little aerated green marks because he didn't know what they were. And he realized right away that he had to report himself. And he, says, he said this, I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep if I didn't tell the rules official. And as a result, he was disqualified. He basically 
forfeited his dream of possibly playing in the U.S. Open, at least for that year. And after telling the story, the the radio host asked this, what would you have done in his situation? What would you have done? Two of them said, they, no way they would have said anything. I mean, what's the big deal, right? It's, it's just some aerated greens. Who would know? They wouldn't have said anything. And two of them said that they would have done exactly the same thing as the golfer. And one of them made the point that golf is different from other sports. That rule one of golfers is that golfers are responsible for applying their own penalties if they breach a rule. You don't find that in other sports, right? You you don't see a a football coach calling a flag on his own team. You you don't see a hockey player, um, you know, put herself in the penalty box because she trips someone. You, You don't see a baseball runner call himself out at home plate. It doesn't happen in any other sport, but in golf, the number one rule is you report yourself. You penalize yourself. One of the radio hosts pointed out that golf has a tradition of self-policing. That's part of the integrity of the game. And in a sense, this message is about self-policing and integrity, except our focus isn't on this one little game that hardly any of us plays. And, and some of you, when I gave that illustration, had no idea what aerated greens were. Um, Our focus isn't on on a small game that some of us play, but it's going to be on money, something that all of us handle every day. In our last message, we talked about being blameless, the kind of person who, who lives and walks with integrity. And in this message, we're going to look at what that means in terms of financial matters. What does it mean to have integrity in how we use money? Our text is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 to 17. Let me read it. Who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Differing weights and differing measures, the Lord detests them both. Even small children are known by their actions. So is their conduct really pure and upright? Ears that hear and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. It's no good, it's no good, says the buyer. Then goes off and boasts about the purchase. Gold there is, and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger. Hold it in pledge if it is done for an outsider. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one end ends up with a mouthful of gravel. These uh, verses talk about five areas of money, how we do business, how we earn income, how we make purchases, how we handle debt, and how we consume goods, five areas. But before we look at those five areas and the the lessons there about integrity, I want you to see how verse 9 prepares us to um, self-police, if you will, these five areas of money. Verse 9 says, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. And many of us from an evangelical background would say, nobody. Who can say they're sinless? 
we would say. And, and we say nobody. We might even quote Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners by nature, so nobody can say that they are sinless. And our response to Solomon's question in verse 9 is, nobody can say that they are clean and without sin. And that would be true, right? But, but that's not what Solomon is talking about. He's not talking about being sinless. He's talking about being blameless. Notice the expression in the first part of the verse. I have kept my heart sure. Stick your fingers in Proverbs chapter 20 and turn back with me about uh, um, a few pages to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73 and verse 13. Psalm 73 verse 13. That little expression, I have kept my heart pure, is also found in Psalm chapter 73 verse 13. And in that psalm, uh, Asaph laments the prosperity of the wicked. He looks around and he sees all the wicked who who get ahead by cheating and by lying and by all the the things that they do. And, And he has kept himself faithful to God. He has trusted in the Lord, but he's not blessed like they are. So he cries out to God and he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I have washed my hands in innocence. He uses that same expression as we saw in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. If you were to ask um, the question, uh, who can say, I have kept my heart pure? Asaph would answer, I have. I have kept my heart pure. That would be Asaph's response to to Solomon's question. He's not saying that he's sinless. He's saying that he has lived with integrity. He has lived a blameless life. And it feels pointless. It feels pointless. What's the point of dealing with the sin in his life and walking faithfully with God if the wicked prosper more than the righteous? Now go back to to Proverbs. Solomon isn't despondent like Asaph, but he has the same concern. He's not asking who is sinless in nature, but who is blameless in character. And the implied answer is that this is rare. Too many people, the, the implied answer here is that too many people are unconcerned about being blameless. Too many people are unconcerned about integrity. This isn't a theoretical question that, that, that Solomon is putting out here. This is a very practical one. When Solomon asked, who can say, I have kept my heart pure? Who can say, I am clean and without sin? We're supposed to respond, I will go against the crowd. I will not be like, a, like everyone else around me. I will be different. We are supposed to respond, I will keep my heart pure. I will be cleansed from my sin. I will be clean and without sin. That's how we're supposed to respond. This is the kind of self-policing we want to practice 
Of course, under the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not about um, sinlessness, right? This is not about perfectionism. This is about being accountable to God and purified from sin. It's about dealing with the sin in our lives as it arises and living to please God in response. If you're not a Christian here, if you're not a believer, if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you never have that assurance of of all your sins being cleansed by, by the death of Jesus, it begins by turning and putting your faith in Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross and took all of your sins upon himself so that you could be right with God. It begins with there, but then ongoing in our lives, we continue to deal with the sin that, 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 that comes up in our lives through confession, through repentance, through, um, through, through faith. Again, not about perfectionism. But about dealing with the sin that arises, living to please God. And so in response to Solomon, we should want to confess our sin and turn from it. We should walk in purity and righteousness. And the reason we can do that is solely because of Christ's work in us. It's because his righteousness has become ours and his resurrection power is in our lives. So that we are now empowered to walk by the Spirit of Christ. That's what enables a life of integrity. With that in mind, five areas of money where we need to keep our hearts pure, where we are to be clean and without sin. Number one, we are to be blameless in how we do business. What's something that's disgusting to you? Just, just, just disgusting. Makes you want to throw up. The, there is a word in the Bible to describe God being disgusted with something. That word is abomination. It's an abomination to God. You think, what could be an abomination to God? And in the book of Proverbs, there's a list of things that are an abomination to him, that he detests. And one of those is corrupt business practices. So verse 10 says, differing weights, differing measures, the Lord detests them both. They are an abomination to him. The phrase differing weights and differing measures refers to two sets of stones for weighing things on a balance or scale or two sets of scoops for measuring volumes. And so in ancient Israel, when, um, when, you, when you went to the marketplace and business was conducted, the item being sold would be weighed. And, uh, you know, say you wanted to buy, um, uh, you know, 100 shekels of grain. The merchant would weigh it. And then when you went to pay, the merchant would also weigh it. So you give them your, your silver or your gold or whatever you were getting, and they weigh it on, on their scale to, to weigh out how much you were to pay for the 100 shekels of, of, uh, of grain that you bought. But sly guy that he is, he has two sets of weights, two stones. 
And so he does this, you know, he's this magician type of thing, and he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out one stone when he's weighing out the grain, and he pulls out another stone when he's weighing the silver. And each stone is weighted just slightly in the merchant's favor. So when he sells you something, the scale measures out just a little less. And when he takes payment from you, that scale measures out just a little more. And God looks at this, and it's an abomination to him. He detests it. He abhors it. He condemns the cheating of customers. He's disgusted when people are taken advantage of for selfish gain. And we may think, you know what? God doesn't really care very much about the ordinary things of everyday life, like, you know, our business practices, like our work habits, like how we handle money. But the God of the Bible cares very much. He will call us to account for how we do business. And verse 11 goes on to underline the importance of that, or the importance of our practices. It says, even small children are known by their actions. So is their conduct really pure and upright? We've all heard that expression, actions speak louder than words. And that applies even with, with children. And, and let me quickly add here that we are more than our behavior. We are more than just the things that we, we do. Um, our behavior doesn't tell the whole story. Nonetheless, the way we begin to discern a person's character is by their behavior. We see their actions. We see what they do. And we begin to, to formulate an assessment of what they're like. Remember back in verse 9, Solomon asked this question, who can say, I have kept my heart pure? He answers that question here in verse 11. Right, the last part of, you notice that word pure is repeated at the end of verse 11. People will know if we're pure. People will know if we're blameless. People will know if we have integrity by what we do, by our actions. It doesn't mean that we're made pure. It doesn't mean that we are cleansed of our sins by our works. But the, other, but the way that others will know that we have been made pure is by our conduct. That's the test of our integrity. So in business, you know, you can market yourself as honest, right? You, you read the advertising. Honest. We have integrity. You can advertise that. But the test... The test of blamelessness is how we actually do business. All of us kind of know that, right? We intuitively, we, we, we see some advertising, and it says, honest Johns, whatever. But deep down, we know the real test is, you know, how do they actually do business? Do we use modern versions of differing weights and differing measures? Or do we treat people with fairness and honesty? Do we have integrity? Are we blameless in how we do business? Secondly, we are to be blameless in how we earn income. Proverbs 20, verses 12 to 13. 
Proverbs 20, verse 12 is a call for us to heed God's wisdom. Ears that hear, eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. God created us with eyes and ears, you know, both in a physical sense and a spiritual sense. They belong to him. Our eyes were made to be focused on seeing him. Our ears were made to be, to be tuned to hearing him. But sin has made us blind to God's, God's truth and, uh, and deaf to his counsel. Yet God in his grace, he gives us ears that hear. He gives us eyes that, that see through faith in Jesus Christ so that we can understand his wisdom, so that we can obey his word. So God in his grace, he, he makes us with eyes and ears. He redeems us to have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears so that we can see and we can hear. Now look at verse 13. Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. If we connect this verse with the previous verse, it creates the picture of of someone who shuts his eyes and closes his ears in more ways than one. It's talking about the sluggard, the, the, the lazy person. And he shuts his eyes and his ears in more ways than one. First, he, he shuts them in sleep. And, and there's nothing wrong with sleep. Right? Some of you are going to go home. I might even go home afterwards and have a nap. There is nothing wrong with sleep. We need sleep. We are not God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. We need regular sleep to be refreshed, to be restored. We need sleep. But the sluggard loves sleep. It's a picture of his laziness. Not a statement about how many hours he, uh, he sleeps, but, but uh, an imagery of closing his eyes and shutting out the world. He doesn't want to face responsibility. At the same time, this, this shutting of the eyes and shutting of the ears um, also is, is a, an image of, of, a, of a spiritual reality. He, he shuts his eyes, he shuts his ears spiritually. He lacks the discernment to understand and to obey God's command to work. And we know this, this verse is about working because it says that those who love sleep grow poor and those who stay awake have food to spare. The sluggard sleeps when he should be working to put food on the table. And so because he, he loves it too much, it says he grows poor. One of the first mandates of the Bible is for us to work. It's a God-designed, God-commanded responsibility. We are to work. We are to do it diligently. This is how we earn an income. We don't earn an income by get-rich-quick schemes. We don't earn an income uh, by stealing from others. Uh, the Apostle Paul exemplified this. Right? This commitment to hard work, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone else's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
I know, sometimes we can't work. And, and I'm so thankful that we have you know, a lot of safety nets that help us through those times. Um, but this, this commitment, this recognition, this, this um, submission to, the, to this uh, truth that God made us to be workers. God designed us this way. And as we are able, when we have that opportunity, we are to fulfill that responsibility. To be blameless, to have integrity in terms of the income we earn. We don't want to make an idol of work, but we don't want to devalue work either. Are we blameless in how we earn income? Thirdly, we are to be blameless in how we make purchases. Have you ever tried to get a deal on a purchase, it's not, listen, it's not wrong to save money. Um, I'm, I am not, this is not about, you know, we can't go out and click coupons and stack them up on top of each other and, and get, uh, get a, a better price. There's nothing wrong with trying to save money. There's nothing wrong with bargaining. I know in our culture we don't do that as much. I know that uh, um, I think Jaffer and uh, I know some of the guys from Turkey have mentioned to me that in their culture, haggling, yeah, it, it is the way, right? <laughs> One guy owned the store and uh, he could not, he hated it. He could not sell something without somebody always wanting to haggle for Haggle on the price. There's there's nothing wrong with bargaining. Um, There's nothing wrong with with haggling, even though the the, the merchant probably hates it. But how far would you go to save a few bucks? Or even a lot of bucks? How far would you go? Would you bend the truth? Proverbs 20, verse 14, describes this, this situation where it seems almost a little bit extreme, but, but when you think about it, it's not. Um, it's the words of a buyer who can't be trusted. It's no good. It, it's no good, says the buyer. And then goes off and boasts about the purchase. We can imagine similar scenarios in, uh, in our culture. For example, uh, someone might go to a restaurant order an expensive meal, eat most of it, and then complain about, oh, the steak was overdone. The food was a little bit, was, was too cold. This or that, right? After they've eaten the, the, the meal. And once the bill is paid, once the deal is wrangled, once the price is haggled down, they go and they brag to their friends about this great buy or they gloat over how they pulled one over on the cell. This is a doubly bad use of words. Right? On one hand, the buyer's words are dishonest. On the other hand, they are, they are proud. Bruce Waltke says the buyer is both a deceitful liar and an impious boaster. And you contrast that with verse 15. Gold there is and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge 
are a rare jewel. Uh, in, in light of verse 14, lips that speak knowledge would include um, uh, honest words and humble words. And the implication is that integrity should be more important to us than money. Our, our value system should align with God's values. From God's perspective, you can have lots of gold, you can have uh, a ton of rubies and other gems, and you can have everything that gold and rubies can buy. And none of that would be as valuable as lips that speak knowledge. None of it would be as valuable as integrity as being blameless. One of the implications of this is that the motive for integrity is not mere duty, but it should be happiness. The motivation for integrity is not just duty. It's not just because I'm supposed to. It should be because of happiness. We desire gold. We desire rubies. We desire the things that gold and rubies can buy. Right? You're lying if you say no. We desire things. But instead of saying, don't desire these things, instead of saying, don't desire gold, instead of saying, don't desire rubies, instead of saying, don't desire the things that gold and rubies can buy, Solomon says, desire wisdom and its resulting integrity far, far more. John Piper says that uh, we, should, we should think about the things that we desire and feel it. Feel what it's like to desire that whatever it is that you desire. He talked about desiring a certain book, about a friend of his desiring a car. Just desire that, imagine desiring that thing whatever it is, and he says, I want you to feel it because we ought to feel the desire for wisdom and integrity far, far more. And the reality is our desires are too easily deceived. They are too easily distorted. We desire or we desire too much the wrong things. And the way the, this verse puts it, more than anything we can buy, there is a greater joy. There is a lasting joy that comes from having integrity before God. That's should motivate us. That's the happiness that is eternal.
are we blameless in how we make purchases? We are to be blameless in how we handle debt. Verse 16. Take the garment of one who puts up security for a stranger. Hold it in pledge if it is done for an outsider. Putting up security was a way of guaranteeing someone else's loan. Uh, It was a form of insurance for the creditor making the the loan. And uh, Proverbs consistently warns us not to do it. And typically, the warning is for the guarantor, the, the person putting up security. Right? Don't put up security like that. If you, and if you have, get out of it as fast as you can. That's how the, uh, the, the Proverbs typically uh, talk about putting up security. But here, the warning seems to be directed at the creditor. If someone puts up security for a stranger or an outsider, take the guarantor's garment as well. The words stranger and outsider are used to speak of someone who is unfaithful, who is untrustworthy, Uh, not just talking about someone you don't know, which is how we typically use those words stranger and outsider, right? Not just someone you don't know, but someone who has this reputation, who who, who is known to be um, untrustworthy, unfaithful. Someone who has abandoned God's wisdom. And so the proverb seems to be saying that if someone lacks the discernment to see the true character of who they are putting up security for, if they lack that discernment, then you should just go ahead and take their garment also. And the garment was was a um, was a, a, a very personal belonging for a person, and symbolically, it, it was kind of like the last possession. We have this expression um, about taking the shirt off someone's back, right? That's, that's um, what that, that phrase uh, symbolized. If someone is foolish enough to throw their money away like this, then, then you should just go ahead and take their garment because soon that's all they're going to have left. And some commentators think that Solomon is using irony or parody here to make a point. In other words, this isn't really a warning. This isn't primarily a warning about protecting yourself from a bad loan. Common sense tells us that, right? You, you, you go onto any um, financial website, any any you go to the government uh, websites about loans, you, you talk to anybody, they will t- tell you common sense says don't make a bad don't, you know, guarantee someone's debt if it's, especially if, you know, that person is untrustworthy. That's just common sense. Solomon is not just giving us common sense here. Um, there's more to wisdom in, than, than just that. This verse is saying more than that. It has to do with integrity and doing what is blameless. It is showing us the seriousness of debt. And whether it's our finances or someone else's finances, we are to take the repayment of debt seriously. We need to think about the impact of debt on all the parties. And the responsibility for this falls on from everyone involved, whether it's the debtor or the creditor or the guarantor. The responsibility falls on on each of those parties. We need to think seriously about the impact of that debt. Integrity thinks about the consequences of our actions.
Finally, we are to be blameless in how we consume goods. Differing weights and measures, loving sleep and shirking work, boasting about a deceptive purchase, putting up security for a stranger. I think all of these are summed up in verse 17. Food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one ends up with a mouth full of gravel. The previous verses describe ways in which we gain what we want by fraud or deception. But the end result is never as good as it seems. And this is not just referring to food, but to all the things that we think we need to satisfy our appetite. All the things that we think we need to satisfy our desires. If it is gained by a lack of integrity, it will leave a bad aftertaste. A mouthful of gravel is this very vivid image, all right? Imagine, imagine your wife, your husband, or your mom, or, or, your, or, or, or your child bakes this fresh loaf of bread. And it just comes out of the oven. And it's piping hot. And just, can you smell that? Can you smell the bread, right? And you slice a piece of that bread off. And, and, and you slather some nice butter on it. It melts so nicely on that, on that bread. And, it, and, it's, and it's hot and it's warm in your hands. And you take a bite. And you chomp down on some rocks. That's the vivid image that Solomon is painting here for us. The image also occurs in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 16, where it speaks of breaking one's teeth. What you thought was delicious, what we thought was satisfying, what you thought was so good, turns out to be extremely painful. This is such an important perspective for us, given the consumer culture in which we live. The story of our, of our modern world is that we need stuff. This is the story of our culture. The storytellers repeat the tale everywhere we turn with all the algorithms backing the marketing that tells us we need to be consumers of this product or this brand. My cell phone on me. But go to your Facebook page. Turn on your cell phone. And there'll be an ad there targeted to you, specifically to you. Sarah mentioned this last week when she was talking to, to the teens. We need to be consumers of this, this, buy this, buy that. Don't get me wrong, all right? The Bible says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
The Bible even invites us to consume. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. But we are to enjoy the goodness of creation with integrity. Not by grabbing for everything we want in whatever way we can. We can trust God to provide. We can trust him. This verse is a call to faith. To walk by faith that what he gives to us is enough. It is sufficient. And let's not compromise our integrity in order to get what we want. When it comes to money, if you were to ask people, you know, what are they the most afraid of being accountable to? Or who they are the most afraid of being accountable to? I suspect that a lot of people would say the tax man. CRA, IRS in the States. Here in Proverbs, um, we are called to have the sort of integrity where you have no fear of any accusation, whether that is from the tax man or any other person. It's the best kind of integrity. It's one that transcends all earthly authority. It is a godly blamelessness where you stand clean and pure before God. Clean and pure before him. We don't pursue this merely because we're afraid of God. Merely because we're afraid that, oh, I'm accountable to him, I'm going to stand before him. We don't pursue it merely because we're afraid of him. We ought to live with integrity because we love God. You know, I I mentioned earlier about golfers self-policing. Why do they do that? Why do the golfers self-police like that? I suspect most serious golfers would say something along the lines that they, that they love golf. They love golf. They love the game. And so they protect the integrity of the game, even if it costs them the opportunity to play in one of the most prestigious tournaments in the world. They do it. And I hope that same kind of motivation lies behind our desire to have integrity before God. Integrity with money, integrity with everything else in our lives. It should arise from a love of God and a thankfulness for the life he has given to us. You know, the gospel is not just salvation from the punishment of our sins. It is also the promise of new life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And not just one day, but that you might have fullness of life now. Christ entered our world. He died and rose again to give us this abundant life. We should be passionate for it. 
knowing that he died to purchase it for us. The prosperity gospel thinks that this abundant life means that uh, you will have lots of money, that you will be wealthy and rich. Their approach to the prosperity gospel says, and in terms of money, the abundant life means that you will be, you will have everything that you want. That is not fullness of life. That is life far too little. When it comes to money, and for that matter, every other area of living, God calls us to an abundant life of wise integrity. Or to put it another way, to be holy. And so let's keep our hearts pure. And let's walk blamelessly as we steward what the Lord entrusts to us. All that he's entrusted to us. May we be stewards of that. May we be pure and blameless in, in all that he gives to us, whether opportunity, whether income, whether responsibility, whatever it is. May we keep our hearts pure. May we be people of integrity. Let's pray together. As people watch our lives, oh God, help us to reflect the character of our Savior. Help us to live with integrity, to be blameless before you. Not with self-righteousness, with the righteousness of Jesus. Not just a right standing before you, but with his right life flowing through us by your spirit. When we sin, give us such soft hearts that we run, that we run to you seek forgiveness and we run to those we have hurt and we make things right thank you God for all that you've given to us help us to be people of integrity with everything that you've placed into our hands that you would be honored and a watching world might be redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.